I'm gonna miss my brother a whole lot. And I thank God for giving me, giving me my own personal Superman. All I think about is when he was yelling for mama, and I know how mama is, she's just right there. She got her hands wide open. Go on and get your rest now. Go on and see mama now. We gonna fight on. We gonna fight on. Scenes from the memorial of George Floyd, the man whose killing sparked a protest movement across the country and around the world, was laid to rest yesterday next to his mother in Houston, Texas. Hello, everyone. I'm David Chalian, the CNN political director. This is The Daily DC. It was a moving scene at the funeral in Houston with thousands of mourners assuring that George Floyd's name will never be forgotten. But as the police reform movement grows, the country goes from celebrating Floyd's life to working to turn his death into lasting change. And Washington is scrambling to catch up with the momentum. Dueling police reform plans introduced by congressional Democrats and Republicans with the White House seemingly on the sidelines for the moment. And today on Capitol Hill, Floyd's brother and lawyer testified in a House hearing on police reform. George called for help, and he was ignored. Please listen to the call I'm making to you now, to the calls of our family and the calls ringing out the streets across the world. People of all backgrounds, genders, and races have come together to demand change. Honor them. Honor George and make the necessary changes. So joining me now to discuss more on this immense moment in our history, our national reporter here at CNN, Omar Jimenez, who has been covering this story from day one. Omar, thank you so much for being here. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Let me just first start where we left off there on Capitol Hill. We've seen these two plans put forward by Republicans and Democrats, although I guess the Republican plan is still being formed and the Democratic plan has a little bit more meat on the bones at the moment. But neither plan is embracing this activist call that you've certainly heard while you've been out there covering this of defunding the police. You've been there in Minneapolis. You've been there in Houston. What do people you've talked to want when it comes to action from the government right now? Well, the real push that I think we've seen, especially let's just start in Minneapolis, which was obviously the focal point of where this story exploded from. You look at the moves that the city council has done there, and that's part of what people had been pushing for in the community in the sense that when you say defund the police, it's not pulling all the funding out of the police department and boom, you have no police. What it means is it's redirecting some of the funds that would have gone to police to other forms, education, community safety, things like that. And so that seems to be what they are now trying to do in places like Minneapolis, because as you mentioned, the sentiment that we had seen from people on the ground was that what we are doing right now isn't working. The investment that we are making in police isn't working. And so what needs to change? And this seemed to be the most that at least the local officials there could do to try and put in place a plan. They had a majority on that plan and a judge now signed off on it. And all of that is basically a temporary plan while an overarching state investigation is underway into the practices of the police department. Because as they said, as the protesters said, we can't wait for 
change to come a month down the line, two months, three months. We need something right now so that another George Floyd doesn't happen. You know, Omar, hearing you say the we can't wait part, I remember, and you were there, I believe, in Minneapolis when George Floyd's brother went to the site of his brother's killing and the memorial that was there and pleaded for people to vote instead of rioting or having violent demonstrations. But obviously voting is far off. We saw in Georgia yesterday their primary was a complete meltdown there in terms of voting, long lines, mail-in ballots not reaching people, huge problems with machines, and especially so for communities of color. LeBron James even tweeted, everyone's talking about how do we fix this? They say go out and vote. What about asking if how we vote is structurally racist? In that sense, I'm just wondering, when you talk to people, are they heeding that call of vote? Do they put this moment in time in the context of electoral politics and political leaders? Or is that just too far down the road for them right now? Honestly, I would say it's a little too far down the road. But, for example, when when the brother comes out and says, vote, don't riot, it's kind of hard to say that to a group of, of protesters that... I mean, let's also be honest that the Floyd family had been calling for peace all along. But the sentiment that you had gotten from the protesters was that we've tried other methods to make our voice heard, whether that's trying to vote, whether that is peacefully protesting. This is what we have left. And that was the rationale that was given for when parts of the city were on fire, when there was literal anarchy in the streets in some cases, which some wasn't necessarily done with good intentions. But for those that were doing it with those intentions, that was the rationale they gave. So when you say or when the family says go out and vote, obviously that is such an important message and people are – thinking about that and likely will when it comes election time in places like Minneapolis and some of these communities. But you also talk about the push here for long-term change that we've seen in these protests. It's not just when it comes to policing and communities of color, but it's also about trying to allow communities of color to feel that they are on the same standing as their white brethren. And of course, tied into that is the ability to vote and a situation where basically you are able to vote in your neighborhoods without any issues, where you can't look at a neighborhood that where property taxes are high because the property values are high, where everything seems to work okay, and then all of a sudden you have to drive miles and miles to a polling location for it maybe to not even work. And maybe you're not even able to take off work to actually go and vote on a day because, you know, it's not a holiday. So this fight, while it is focused on policing, the overarching fight is to take a step forward as a community and voting ties into that. And I don't think you have to look further than George's experience to see why it's so important. And we'll be back with more from CNN's Omar Jimenez. We're back with Omar Jimenez. Let's turn to that funeral that you were covering yesterday. Uh, We saw those moments. They were just remarkable, soaring songs and obviously grieving family and friends. Can you take us inside the memorial? What was it like being there? Well, at that memorial or or the funeral at this point, because we had seen memorials from Minneapolis to North Carolina and even Houston, and then the day of the funeral itself— They kept it to about 500 guests, family, friends, and invited guests. And really, the way to describe it was a homegoing service, that they were sending him home. So at times, it was celebratory of the life that he had lived and the influence that he had had on so many people. But let's also remember, 
This family has been operating at the intersection of sparking a movement, a nationwide movement, in some cases across the world, while at the same time trying to process the very real pain of losing a loved one, losing a father, losing a brother, an uncle. And so you saw some of that come out, where of course they realize the importance of the moment and the significance of the moment that they are in. But when you see the brother get up there and cry very real tears about losing their superhero, losing their father figure, you're reminded of the humanity in this. And after that funeral service was over, we of course heard the eulogy about pushing for change and, and about not letting his death be in vain. Afterwards, the casket was escorted by the Houston Police Department. It was something the police department there said they wanted to do to show their support in this. And he was escorted towards where his final burial place would be, the last leg of which was done by a horse-drawn carriage, and he was laid to rest next to his mother, the very same mother, by the way, he cried out for in his final moments that we saw play out on camera. Just devastating. The presumptive Democratic nominee, Joe Biden, appeared in a video message at the funeral and offering condolences, leaning into his experiences with loss, which, as you know, Joe Biden has many. I want you to hear a little bit of what he said. Now is the time for racial justice. That's the answer we must give to our children when they ask why. Because when there is justice for George Floyd, we will truly be on our way to racial justice in America. When you have the Democratic nominee for president appear, it's impossible to be devoid of, of politics in this moment. And I'm just wondering, in your conversation there, it just seems like... George Floyd was top of mind and these issues of justice are top of mind. But I'm wondering, was there a conversation anywhere you were picking up about sort of Biden versus Trump or real concern that the president is not fighting for racial justice? What did you pick up there in terms of the politics when something like Joe Biden appears at an event? Well, I think the the most pointed response or the most focused one, I should say, came from Stephen Jackson, who's a friend of George Floyd's and a former NBA player. And he said that he's not a political guy, but he very much appreciated the fact that what was happening in Minneapolis or out of their hometown of Houston, Third Ward, was resonating in places like Washington. And in regards to comparing the two, because we do know uh, the president reached out to the family, as we have heard as well, there did seem to be differences in the conversations and the reaction within the family between some of those conversations. Mainly, the one with Joe Biden seemed to last a lot longer because, as we had heard, it seemed to be a little bit more engaging and, and two-sided is probably the best way um, to put that. Now, in regards to, to Biden's message and his relatability to this in the most unfortunate way, it goes back to what I was saying about the intersection of, of trying to process pain but also being so much in the public light as you were trying to do so, him processing the death of his son and then, of course, here, all of this family trying to process the death of George Floyd. And so there was an instant relatability there. And, and there was a picture of Joe Biden that we were sent just speaking and interacting with the six-year-old daughter of Floyd. and with, with everyone in their masks. With everyone in their masks. Because let's not forget, it's a pandemic. <laughs> but I think just having, seeing that image of an interaction 
with someone in the next generation, someone who's going to grow up without a father, someone who is likely going to learn a lot of the context that we are experiencing right now later on in her life, I think was a pretty impactful moment for the family and at least people I've spoken to, something they'll hold on to for a while. I also wanted to ask you about this new incident coming to light in Austin where Javier Ambler was killed by police. Take a listen to what his mother told CNN about similarities to George Floyd. When I saw that video, I didn't even finish watching it, but I just assumed his was similar to that situation. And just the way he was saying, I can't breathe. You know, he was overweight. And I knew he had heart problem. And I just knew, and I just assumed that's exactly something like that is what he experienced. Ambler's family was at the funeral for Floyd yesterday, I believe, along with the families of other black men killed by police. It's sort of a sort of tragic community now that seems to have formed. Yeah, that's right. These are stories that, obviously, this is an unfortunate situation out of Austin over a death uh, last year that's now coming to light because of body cam video. But all of these people that were there, Trayvon Martin's mother, Eric Garner's mother, who Eric Garner's last words were, I can't breathe, back in 2014, which was sort of the, the spark of that phrase. And then, of course, they're attending a funeral for George Floyd. These are names that have become unfortunate hashtags over the years, and it seems to be a repetitive process that we are seeing. And so that is the fact that all of them were in this moment, and and there was actually a moment prior to the funeral where the attorney for the family, Benjamin Crump, had everyone gather around for an impromptu press conference, and they named off the mothers of all of the names that were there. And you realize These are years apart, not decades, literal year after year after year. And this isn't the 1960s or 70s. These are the 2010s. And so you see a living example of how families are are related in the worst imaginable way. And it's just a reminder of the fact that protesters in this movement is less about George Floyd but it's about the spark that he created so that there are not more families at the next funeral. Finally, Omar, before I let you go, I know we all know what you went through with the arrest of Minneapolis a few weeks ago, and obviously your journalism covering this story is so much greater than that moment that got so much attention. But I do want to know just how, as a black man, covering this story like you've been doing, do you have a process by which you internalize all that you're covering? And I would imagine to just, you know, put on some antiseptic journalistic hat and and remove yourself from this process, even if you hadn't had gone through that experience. So I'm just wondering, have you been able to take a moment to internalize this moment in America that you're covering? I don't think I've taken a moment to fully contextualize, internalize, process everything, but it's come in moments, starting with that arrest in particular. When you talk about being black and covering a story that is black in nature, just the framing that you have on the events that are happening is different. For example, when the arrest actually happened and I was put in cuffs and detained and led away, there's a whole conversation about journalistically that is unbelievable. First Amendment rights, I cannot believe that happened. So that's an entirely separate conversation. But the other conversation, the more pertinent one, is about the fact that this happened on live television, which gave me some sense of protection, But also it makes you think about the fact that, well, if this wasn't videotaped, if this happened elsewhere and no one could see the fact that I was being polite, the fact that I was being cordial, 
my account likely would have been called into question about, well, he must have done something that led up to the cuffing. So that's one. And then secondly, when I was led to the police van to be transported, here comes that framing again, where even just from a reporting standpoint, another intersection, when I was a local reporter in Baltimore, I covered the aftermath of what happened to Freddie Gray and the trials around that. And bottom line, in that case, Freddie Gray got into a police van alive, and by the time he had gotten out, he had sustained a fatal back injury or an injury that eventually became fatal. And so as I'm being loaded into the police van, cuffed and sat down with no, there were seatbelts, but there was no way to put on the seatbelt. That was one of the thoughts that went through my head, that I felt, again, some sense of protection that hopefully people were calling for me in the background as I, as I found out. They were literally calling the governor to help me out. But we know 99.9% .9 of the time that is not the case. And what happens to me between the cuffing and the detainment and when I'm eventually released is at the pure discretion of the police department. And that can be kind of a, a scary place to be in. And so just to answer your question, it, it comes down to framing and conversations I then have with family about recognizing this moment and knowing that even though this happened to me, it was in some ways a microcosm of the larger story that I was covering. No doubt about that. And your journalism has just been superb throughout this entire process. I'll take a moment of Northwestern pride and privilege to say go Cats. Omar, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. Really appreciate it. Of course. Thanks for having me, man. And a special thanks to our listeners as well. Remember, we publish a new episode every weeknight. So please subscribe on your favorite podcast app. While you're there, consider leaving a rating or a comment. It helps people find the show. And if you want to tweet about this podcast, please do so using the hashtag TheDailyDC. Stay safe, stay healthy. We'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.